0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My husband started drinking whiskey, and since we're in the South, he has a tendency toward bourbon. But I'll go to the store to get him some, and I just stand there. Not only do I not know what's good or what the differences are between the kinds, I'd love to know more of the history, the science, the weird stories behind the different labels. I mean, did you know that bourbon can't be produced anywhere else in the world? you'd know that if you were listening to bourbon pursuit bourbon pursuit is the official podcast for all things bourbon the best source for news reviews and interviews with people in the industry hosts kenny coleman ryan cecil and fred minnick put out three new episodes every week on their epic bourbon journeys bourbon pursuit is just a button push away wherever the good stuff is poured The story so far. In the beginning, the universe was created. This has made a lot of people very angry and has widely been regarded as a bad move. Thus begins Douglas Adams' Restaurant at the End of the Universe, sequel to his cultural touchstone, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That's the book that gave us the answer to life, the universe, and everything, though not the question. So grab a towel, my hoopy Fruits, and don't panic. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. We're talking today about the history of British comedy, which must be measured in centuries, from chase scenes and beatings in Shakespeare's comedies to the misadventures of Mr. Bean. Even as times, tastes, and technology changed, some themes are eternal. Innuendo, for example, has been a staple in literature as far back as Beowulf, and is prevalent in many folk songs. King Charles II was such a fan of innuendo, he encouraged it, to the point that restoration comedy became not only its own genre, but an explicit one at that. The repressive Victorian period gave us burlesque, rather familiar with that myself, though it wasn't in the same form as what we see today. Theirs was much more vaudeville and less striptease. Absurdism and the surreal have often been an undercurrent, taking root firmly in the 1950s, giving us everything from Red Dwarf to Count Ducula. Though the British Empire successfully conquered one quarter of the globe, its individual people struggled and suffered. Plagues, wars, poverty, class oppression, the food, and filthy cities— gave rise to, and a need for, dark humor in which topics and events that are usually treated seriously are treated in a humorous and satirical manner. The class system, especially class tensions between characters, with pompous or dim-witted members of the upper and middle classes and embarrassingly blatant social climbers, have always provided ample material which we can see in shows like Absolutely Fabulous, Keeping Up Appearances, and, my perennial favorite, Blackadder. The British also value finding humor in everyday life. You see that in shows like Father Ted, The IT Crowd, and Spaced, which also incorporates a fair amount of absurdity. But there's nothing the Brits do better than satire, and nobody does it better than the Brits. The British, being cynical and sarcastic by nature, do have a natural flair for satire, says BBCAmerica.com writer Fraser McAlpine. There's a history of holding up a mirror to society and accentuating its least attractive qualities that goes back hundreds of years. Sometimes the satire is biting and cold, sometimes it's warm and encouraging. But if you want someone who can say a thing that isn't true, But also, somehow, is true in a truly profound way, you need look no further. There are three principal forms of satire. Manipian satire uses fantasy realms that reflect back on modern society. Everything from Alice in Wonderland to the works of Terry Pratchett fit here, as would Doctor Who. Horatian satire skewers cultural moments of silliness using parodic humor. That's stuff like you see on comedy TV today, such as The Office. We're laughing at people being inept and harassed, but not evil. Juvenalian satire skewers everything with abrasive and often bleak wit. If there's a tiny element of horror in the topic being discussed, that's a clue that it's juvenalian. Most political cartoons and definitely black humor fall under this heading. John Oliver is a fair hand with Juvenalian satire. Though comedy is as old as laughter, we're going to begin today's time travel with the music hall. Music halls sprang up as an answer to proper theater, which was at times heavily monitored and censored by the government. It took place in humble venues, like the back corner of a pub or a coffee house. By the 1830s, taverns had special rooms, dedicated to musical clubs. They presented Saturday evening sing songs and free and easies. These became so popular that entertainment was put on two or three times a week. Music in the form of humorous songs was a key element because dialogue was forbidden. Dialogue was for the theater, and if you had speaking parts, you'd be subject to censorship. The Theatrical Licensing Act of 1737 empowered the Lord Chamberlain's office to censor plays, and this act would be in force until 1968. They were allowed to have drinking and smoking, which, you know, legitimate theaters didn't. As the music hall shows became more popular, they moved from the pubs into venues of their own. Tavern owners, therefore, Often annexed buildings adjoining their premises to convert them into music halls. A typical show consisted of six to eight acts, possibly including a comedy sketch, low comedy to appeal to the working class usually, a juggling act, a magic act, a mime, acrobats, dancers, a singer, and maybe a one act pantomime play. In the States, this format was essentially what we call vaudeville. The music hall era was a heyday for female performers, with headliners like Greasy Fields, Lily Langtree, and Vesta Tilly. The advent of the talking motion picture in the late 1920s caused many music halls to convert into cinemas to stay afloat. To keep the comedians employed, a mixture of films and songs called cine-variety was introduced. The other critically important tradition from that era was panto or pantomime, but not the Marcel Marceau street performer type of pantomime you might be picturing. A type of theatrical musical comedy designed for families. Modern panto, the attending of which is a Christmas tradition for most families, includes songs, gags, slapstick, dancing, and gender-swapped costumes. It combines topical humor with well-known stories like fairy tales. And I have it on good authority, it's just awful. But, you know, you'll love it anyway. It's a participatory form of theater in which the audience is expected to talk back or sing along at certain places. Kind of like Rocky Horror for the under fives. In the early 19th century, pantomime acquired its present form and featured the first mainstream clown Joseph Grimaldi. If you're curious what the very first professional mainstream clown costume looked like, it's a good thing I put a picture of it over in the Vodacast app. Vodacast is a cool podcast listening app. Yes, I know you have one already, but this one lets me give you supplemental information, pictures, videos. Eventually, I'll learn how to actually use the thing and be able to put the whole script up there, syncing all the stuff together so When I say, first clown ever, Joseph Grimaldi, you can boom, there's the picture. It's available for both Android and Apple, Vodacast, V-O-D-A-C-A-S-T. Panto would be the Pokemon trainer gym for some of British comedy's biggest names, like Charlie Chaplin and Stan Laurel. The influential English music hall comedian and theater impresario Fred Carno developed a form of sketch comedy without dialogue in the 1890s and Chaplin and Laurel were among the young comedians who worked for him as part of Fred Carnot's army. Hopping back a bit to famous ladies of Music Hall, one was Lily Harley, though her greatest claim to fame was having given birth to Charles Spencer Chaplin. When Lily inexplicably lost her voice in the middle of a show, the production manager pushed the then five-year-old Charlie, whom he'd heard sing, onto the stage to replace her. Charlie lit up the room, wowing the audience with his natural comedic presence. Sadly, Lily's voice never really recovered, and she was unable to support her two sons, who had to be sent to a workhouse. For those who don't know workhouses outside of one line in A Christmas Carol, think of an orphanage or jail with indentured servitude. Young Charlie took whatever jobs he could find to survive as he fought his way back to the stage. His acting debut was as a page boy in a production of Sherlock Holmes. From there, he toured with a vaudeville outfit named Casey's Court Circus, and in 1908 teamed up with the Fred Carnot pantomime troupe, where the main arrow in Chaplin's comedy Quiver was playing the drunk in comedy sketches. With the Carnot troupe, Chaplin got his first taste of the US, where he caught the eye of a film producer who signed him to a contract for $150 a week, equivalent to a little over three grand today. In his first year with them, Chaplin made 14 films, including The Tramp, which established his trademark character and his role as the unexpected hero. By the age of 26, Chaplin, just three years out from his vaudeville days, was a superstar. He'd moved over to the Mutual Company, who paid him a whopping $670,000 a year to make now classics like Easy Street. Chaplin came to be known as a grueling perfectionist. His love for experimentation often meant countless takes, and it wasn't uncommon for him to order the rebuilding of an entire set or begin filming with one lead actor, realize he didn't really like this guy after all, and start filming all over again. But you can't argue with the results. During the 1920s, Chaplin's career blossomed even more with landmark films like The Kid and The Gold Rush, a movie Chaplin would later say he wanted to be remembered by. We'll leave Chaplin's story while he's on top, Because from here on out, his private life gets, how can we put this politely, sorted. Though Chaplin was English, his films were American. British cinema arguably lagged somewhat behind, but they began to close the gap in the 1940s. Films by Ealing Studios, particularly their comedies like Hue and Cry, Whiskey Galore, and The Lady Killers, began to push the boundaries of what could be done in cinema dealing with previously taboo topics like crime in comedic ways. Kitchen Sink dramas followed soon after, portraying social realism with the struggles of working-class Britons on full display, living in cramped rental accommodations, spending their off-hours drinking in grimy pubs, to explore controversial social and political issues ranging from abortion to homelessness. These contrasted sharply with the idea of cinema as escapism. This was the era of such notable stars as actor-comedian-singer-songwriter Norman Wisdom. Beginning with 1953's Trouble in the Store, for which he won a BAFTA, roughly equivalent to an Oscar, his films were among Britain's biggest box office successes of their day. Wisdom gained celebrity status in lands as far apart as South America, Iran, and many Eastern Bloc countries, particularly in Albania, where his films were the only ones by a Western actor that their dictator permitted to be shown. He also played one of the best characters in one of my favorite and most hard-to-find films, The Night They Raided Minsky's about the supposed true story of how striptease started in burlesque. I would not ever suggest someone pirate a movie. I'm just saying you could. Speaking of things you could do while you've got your computer out, you could leave a review for the podcast or the Your Brain on Facts book, like this great review I got from one of my favorite people, one of my top tier and most generous supporters at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts, David Nolan, or Nowlin, apologies, who says, Five stars. Be prepared to be amazed at what you needed to know but did not. Great book. Read it cover to cover, but I'm planning to reread it again and again. It is so full of such wonderful pieces of information that I use to interject conversations whenever I can. Thank you, Moxie, for such a wonderful gift. And the book is great, too. Speaking of gifts, check with your nearest bookstore to see if they have the Your Brain on Facts book for the upcoming holidays. Don't want to bother? Well, you can get merch drop shipped to them at yourbrainonfacts.com slash merch. The latest design features a quote I really feel to heart. I know a non-zero amount of things about a lot of things from Matt Parker, the stand-up mathematician. And thanks also this week to Board at Work 23, who left a review for the podcast on Podchaser, which is like the IMDb of podcasts. Moxie got me through 2,500 miles. I listened to every episode, regardless of audio quality from the vault. Mister, you're a better man than I. I got my fix of facts with a personality that kept me entertained the entire time. I shared it with everyone I knew that would appreciate the facts, wit, and hilariously subtle segues. Thank you not only for that lovely review, but also for sharing the show. It is still the single best way you can help a content creator that you enjoy. And in fact, I'd like you to share something specific this week. Was there a fact that really caught your ear, or surprised you, or you think will surprise someone you know? Share it on your social media. And be sure to tag the show. Facebook and Instagram, Your Brain on Facts, Twitter, Brain on Facts Pod. And hey, I'm on TikTok now because apparently when you do voiceovers, you have to be. That's at Moxie LaBouche. And of course, if you need a smooth corporate voice for your business or e learning project, visit moxielabouche.com. A lot of my friends have had babies in the past year or so. Uh, first children, all of them I've noticed. So I'm definitely going to recommend that they all check out the healthy postnatal body podcast with postnatal expert, Peter Lapp. Peter answers all your postnatal health and fitness related questions and does interviews with a wide variety of expert guests, genuine experts, no goop stuff. Okay. Subscribe to the healthy postnatal body podcast on your favorite podcast player, Learn more at HealthyPostnatalBody.com and be sure to download your free postnatal health guide. There are few institutions in British history that have had such a massive role in shaping the daily lives of British citizens as the British Broadcasting Corporation, which for decades meant the wireless radio. For many, it is an ever-present companion, from breakfast time to bedtime, from childhood through to old age. There it is telling us about ourselves and the wider world, amusing and entertaining us, says Robin Aitken, a former BBC reporter and journalist. The BBC solidified its place in the public consciousness from its beginnings in 1922 to the end of the Second World War in 1945 because these pivotal years helped define what it means to be British in modern society. This was especially true during the high unemployment of the 1920s, when other forms of entertainment were unaffordably unavailable. The BBC was formed from the merger of several major radio manufacturers in 1922, received a royal charter in 1927, and was later protected by the government from foreign competition, essentially making it a monopoly. Broadcasting was seen as a public service. To wit, a job at the BBC Carried similar gravitas to a government job. Classical music and educational programs were its bedrock, with radio plays added to bring theater to the wireless. The BBC strove to be varied but balanced in its offerings, neutral but universal. Expansion in offerings came slowly, if at all, in the early years. Many people found their offerings a bit elitist. Trying to bring only the best of culture to the people meant that body music hall acts had little to no place on the radio. Obscenity was judged by laws passed as early as 1727. Talk about working out of an old book. Libel and slander laws are more strict in Britain than in the U.S., so making fun of public figures was taboo, even in forms that would have technically been legal. And blasphemy? Lord, no. In 1949, the BBC issued the Variety Program's Policy Guide for Writers and Producers, commonly known as The Green Book, which you heard more about in our episode, Read a Rainbow, which is also in the Your Brain on Facts book, audiobook available most places now. Among things absolutely banned were jokes about lavatories, effeminacy, in men, immorality of any kind, suggestive references to honeymoon couples, chambermaids, fig leaves, ladies' underwear, prostitution, and the vulgar use of the word basket. Not an actual basket, but the Polari word basket, meaning the bulge in a gentleman's trousers. More on that later. The guidelines also stipulated that such words as God, good God, my God, Blast, hell, damn, bloody, gore-blimey, ruddy, etc., etc., should be deleted from scripts and innocuous expressions substituted. Boy, you're just a barrel of f-ing laughs, aren't you? Where the independently run music halls gave people what they wanted, BBC Radio gave people what they thought they needed. But writers are nothing if not clever. And the last thing you should do if you want a comedian to behave is tell them what not to do. There is always a way to slip past the censors if you really try. In the very beginning of radio, comedies lampooned the poor because only those with money had radios. As radio ownership grew, the topics of shows broadened. The first half-hour comedy program in 1938, Bandwagon, included musical interludes but was effectively a sitcom and set the stage for much of what would come after. At that point, nearly every household had a radio. As it did so many other aspects of life, World War II had an enormous impact on British comedy and entertainment in general. Unlike World War I, which was fought on the continent, World War II was right on top of them with the blitz, blackouts, rationing that lasted into the 50s, etc. All places of amusement, which by their nature meant lots of people gathering together as an easy target for bombers, had to be closed. But the government soon realized that comedy had an important role to play in the war effort, helping its people to keep calm and carry on. Bonus fact, the iconic Keep Calm and Carry On poster was designed months before World War I began, but was never officially sanctioned for display. It only achieved its prominent position in the public imagination after its rediscovery in 2001. All the parody t-shirts do still annoy me, though. Theater was allowed to continue, but television service was suspended. This brought radio back to the forefront for communication and diversion. The most popular show was It's That Man Again, which ran on BBC Radio from 1939 to 1949. Its humor was a great unifier during the war, helping people to laugh at the things they were scared of. People would often listen while huddled around their radio during a blackout. In its character archetypes, it offered a broader range of social representation than what had come before, with characters ranging from East End char women to the upper class. It was so universally popular that supposedly it's catchphrases, and it's regarded as the first program to have a catchphrase really catch fire, they were supposedly used to test German spies. If you didn't know what the next line was or who said what, you'd be shot. Hopefully our next war will be with Canada, so I can use my extensive memorization of Letterkenny to slip behind enemy lines. And I was serious if anybody wants to do a virtual watch party on Boxing Day for Letterkenny Season 10. During the war, Britain fought back against the Nazi propagandists' ferocious scaremongering with things like a song about the fact that Hitler may or may not have had only one testicle the other being stored in a London theatre for safekeeping. This attitude, combined with having had enough authority to last them for a while, would extend to their own government at the start of the 1960s, when Peter Cook, Dudley Moore, Alan Bennett, and Jonathan Miller made fun of the Prime Minister in their stage show Beyond the Fringe with the PM in the audience. That's ballsy. Of course, I am married to a man who did a burlesque routine as George R.R. R. Martin in front of George R.R. R. Martin. True story. Beyond the Fringe opened the door for satirical news programs like 1962's That Was the Week That Was, grandfather to The Daily Show and Colbert Report. There was also The Frost Report, whose staff of writers included five names many of you know well, and you know you're going to get more details on. Chapman, Jones, Idol, Palin, and Cleese. The war would remain subject of comedy, either as the primary setting or a recurring plot point, for decades to come, with shows like Dad's Army and even Are You Being Served, one of my all-time favorites. Experiences in the war led to the prominence of absurdism and surrealism, because nothing could match what the men had been through. One of the most famous examples was The Goon Show, with Spike Milligan, Harry Secombe, and Peter Sellers. The scripts mixed ludicrous plots with surreal humor, puns, catchphrases, and an array of bizarre sound effects. Some of the later episodes feature electronic effects devised by the fledgling BBC Radiophonic Workshop who would also create the theme to Doctor Who. The Goon Show and other such programs were popular with those who were students at the time, seeding their sense of humor into the next generation. Spike Milligan, in particular, had wide-reaching cultural influence. The Goon Show was cited as a major influence by The Beatles, the American comedy team, The Firesign Theater, as well as, among many others, Monty Python. Nope, still not quite to them yet. Way, way back in episode number 39, short-lived, long-remembered, I said that Jackie Gleason's Honeymooners was the first TV sitcom. I was mistaken, and I don't mind issuing a correction. I don't mind being corrected. It means I've learned something new. A show called Pinwright's Progress, which ran for 10 episodes starting in 1946, was the first half-hour television sitcom, telling the tale of a beleaguered shop owner, his hated rival, and his unhelpful staff. By 1955, a third of British households had a television. That year saw the launch of ITV, I for Independent, because it was the first channel not run by the BBC, founded by showmen and entertainers rather than folks with, you know, expensive educations. Where the BBC did comedies for and about the middle class, and when British people say middle class, they mean a higher middle class than when Americans say middle class, ITV brought full-blooded variety. The BBC was forced to loosen its tie to keep up. ITV also had commercials which BBC shows never did. So writers had to learn to pace their shows differently to allow for the break. One standout was Hancock's Half Hour, which began on radio and moved to TV. From 1954 to 1961, it pushed sitcoms with a focus on character development rather than silly gags, musical numbers, and funny voices. Two writers on that show, Ray Galton and Alan Simpson, would leave to create Comedy Playhouse in 1961, comprised of ten half-hour plays. One of these grew into the TV show Steptoe and Son, 62-1974, with two rag-and-bone men, father and son, who lived together in a squalid house in West London. This was the basis for the American show Sanford and Son, as well as versions in Sweden, the Netherlands, and Portugal. But was its theme song as good as the theme to Sanford and Sons? We'll leave that question to the philosophers. The answer is no, by the way. For those not in the know, a rag-and-bone man collected salvageable rubbish from the street, making it a bizarre name for a high-end clothing company to use, but to each his own. The tone and offerings changed considerably with the Cultural Revolution of the 1960s. Rock music, the birth control pill, civil rights, everything was changing. Round the Horn, which aired on BBC radio on Sunday afternoons, was chock full of brazen innuendos and double entendres. Some of them were risque to the point of being, ironically, safe. The people who would have objected to them didn't catch the joke in the first place their most remarkable characters were julian and sandy two very obviously gay characters in a time when it was still illegal to be gay in britain julian and sandy got away with the bawdiest of their jokes because they spoke polari polari was a pidgin language made up of words from romani french italian theater circus slang, even words spelled backwards. They might refer to someone's dirty dishes, and the squares would have no idea that dish meant derriere. Bonus fact, you're probably using Polari words without even realizing it. If you describe a masculine person as butch, or something kitschy as camp, even when you watch drag race, drag was the Polari word for clothes, especially women's clothes. The Carry On films, a franchise that put out nearly a movie a year for three decades and spun out a TV series, held up a cartoonish mirror to the depressed and repressed Britain of the 1950s and 60s. They blended the rapid-fire pace of music hall sketches with topicality and a liberating sense of directness. Carry On also filled the gap left as music halls as an institution collapsed. All right, enough teasing, here it is. Monty Python's Flying Circus aired from 1969 to 1974 and enjoyed a unique watershed success, not just for British comedy, but also for television comedy around the world. It was both a symbol and a product of the social upheaval and youth-oriented counterculture of the late 1960s. The show's humor could be simultaneously sarcastic, scatological, and intellectual. The series was a creative collaboration between Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Eric Idle, Terry Jones, Michael Palin, and Terry Gilliam, the sole American in a group of Oxford and Cambridge graduates. The five Brits played most of the roles, with Gilliam primarily contributing eccentric animations. Although sketch comedy shows were nothing new, television had never broadcast anything as surreal and untraditional, and its importance to television is difficult to overstate. Their free-form sketches seldom adhered to any particular theme and disregarded the conventions of comedy that writers, performers, and audiences had been accustomed to for generations even the opening title sequence didn't follow the rules it might run in the middle of the show or be omitted entirely over those five years a few characters recurred but most were written solely for one sketch the show spun off a number of feature films like monty python and the holy grail in 1975 life of brian in 79 The meaning of life in 1983 which when i saw it at age 15 finally explained to me why everyone asked if we were catholic when i told them i was one of six kids and monty python even created the tony award-winning musical spamalot first produced in 2005 as well as books and albums like instant record collection decades after the show's initial run The mere mention of a dead parrot, silly walks, spam, or the Spanish Inquisition is enough to prompt laughter from even casual fans. They would all continue on to success in their careers, but let's follow John Cleese for a minute to his next best-known project. Faulty Towers has been described as the sitcom by which other sitcoms must be measured voted number one in the BFI's 100 Greatest British Television Programs list. Its main character, Basil Faulty, was inspired by a seethingly rude hotel proprietor that Cleese encountered while filming abroad with Python. Cleese actually tested the character on another show in 1971, Doctor at Large, a comedy about newly graduated doctors, based on the books of Richard Gordon. The setting for Faulty Towers was a painfully ordinary hotel that Basil constantly struggled to inject a touch of class or some joie de vivre into. His escapades included trying to hide a rat from the hygiene inspector, keeping a dead customer hidden, and pretending that his wife Sybil was sick during their anniversary party when in fact she'd walked out on him. Basil was the perfect vehicle for Cleese's comic talents, mixing the biting verbal tirades against his wife and the guests with the physical dexterity utilized to charge about between self-induced disasters. Part of the success of the show is arguably the fact that it only ran for 12 episodes, so it never had the opportunity to become stale. It's been remade in other countries, but those versions never really captured the bottled lightning of the original. The tone shifted again as the 60s gave way to the 70s. The anger of 60s revolution bled into a more comfortable feeling in the 70s. One of the standouts of the decade, continuing on into the 80s, was The Two Ronnies, a sketch show starring Ronnies Barker and Corbett. It moved away from the long-standing comic and straight man format. It was the BBC's flagship of light entertainment, the longest-running show of its genre. If we're talking modern comedy duos, we need to talk about Dawn French and Jennifer Saunders. Even in alternative comedy scenes, women have trouble gaining the same notoriety as their male peers. A step in the right direction was 1987's French and Saunders, a sketch show that displayed the willful amateurishness of much of alternative comedy, but shunned both the violence and scatology, or the strident politics, that were the staples of big-name performers. The duo's humor was distinctly female, but not feminist, and most of their jokes were at the expense of themselves or each other. As audiences and budgets grew, the pair increasingly favored elaborate spoofs of pop stars and blockbuster movies. After the show, French starred in The Vicar of Dibley and Saunders to the role she's probably best well known for, Edina, in Absolutely Fabulous. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Don't be surprised if someday this episode gets a sequel. I didn't even touch on Punch and Judy, skipped right over all of literature didn't touch on panel shows, why did the British love panel shows so much, and said nothing of Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie, which may actually be a crime, I'm not sure. Well, it's like they say in the biz, always leave them wanting more. Remember, you can always find the script and the source links at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe.